today's podcast is sponsored by Brain FM. Now, Brain FM is something that I pretty much use every single day. Since downloading it over a year ago, it's my go-to to get work done, to be able to focus. But not only that, it helps me relax, fall asleep, meditate. It has so many different effects and it has so many different ways of using it. It's one of the best things I have at my disposal, one of the best tools, especially when you've got ADHD. And the most fascinating thing about Brain FM is that it's all about non-invasive neurostimulation. And they are pushing towards an adjustment of the brain states through sound, light, and touch, as well as dynamic stimulation through biosensors. And for the first time in history, they are seeing that the understanding and ability to shape our brain activity for the better and to support anyone anywhere. And Brain FM believes that the different brain, we have different brain, so I'm going to say this again. Brain FM believes that different brains have different needs and that understanding a person is key to helping them. And this is exactly what they do. They have different effects. They have different types of music, different types of stimulation. So you can really choose what works for you. So some days I really feel like I need some classical with some forest sounds with an undercurrent of water and that delivers to me. And for whatever reason, to do with all the neurostimulation, it genuinely helps me get what I need to do done. I put my phone on aeroplane mode and my focus is really high. So I wanted to share with you a 20% discount for Brain FM. For you to download this, head to the show notes of today's podcast and put in ADHD Women's Wellbeing, the code, and you will get 20% off. Um, I'll also put a link there so it goes straight through as well. So if you head to the show notes, you'll get all the information there. And the code is ADHD Women's Wellbeing. Welcome to the ADHD Women's Wellbeing podcast. I'm Kate Moore Youssef, and I'm a wellbeing and lifestyle coach, EFT practitioner, mum to four kids, and passionate about helping more women to understand and accept their amazing ADHD brains. After speaking to many women just like me and probably you, I know there is a need for more health and lifestyle support for women newly diagnosed with ADHD. In these conversations, you'll learn from insightful guests, hear new findings and discover powerful perspectives and lifestyle tools to enable you to live your most fulfilled, calm and purposeful life wherever you are on your ADHD journey. Here's today's episode. Hi everyone, welcome back to the ADHD Women's Wellbeing Podcast. I am Kate Moore Youssef and today we're talking about education and the future of education with regards to neurodivergence and I'm excited to introduce you to a 22-year-old graduate student at Harvard University. Her name is Simran Diol and she is studying a master's degree in human development and education and Simran was diagnosed with ADHD over two years ago and I'm really excited to have this conversation because as someone who is now in her 40s and I'm desperate to see education change. I'm desperate to see this future of being able to harness our neurodivergence and actually work with it as a strength as opposed to always feeling like we are failing or it's a weakness. So Simran, I'm so excited to have you here. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me. I'm very excited. Yeah. So from what you sent me, um, and I understand that you were, before attending Harvard, you were a struggling student, you were failing school. You said you barely graduated from high school and you were put on academic probation during undergrad. 
And it was when you were 19 that you started recognizing that there was learning difficulties and you were diagnosed with ADHD. And maybe you can tell us a little bit about the Simran then back at school and what was going on for you and how you were supported or maybe not so much supported and how you've got from that place to being at Harvard doing a master's degree. Yeah. So when I was 19, I think that was the point in my educational journey where it was at an all-time low. I was at the lowest, like at a 1.7 GPA and, and I was on academic probation. And so I really had to start thinking about what was going on. And I was in a psychology class when my professor was talking about ADHD. And I guess I never really thought of it before, but everything she was saying, I was like, oh my gosh, that's me. That that's exactly what I'm, you know, what I'm going through and what's happening. So I started doing research into it. I talked to the school psychologist and um, I got tested and I have specific learning disorder in reading, writing, and math and ADHD. So both of those things. And it was definitely life-changing because I feel that if I didn't get diagnosed at that time, I don't know if I would have stayed in school. And I don't know if that would have been like by choice or by being kicked out. I just know that that diagnosis was definitely at the right time. Like it was, uh, I got an appointment a few months into that whole debacle of being on academic probation. And so, you know, I had that semester to get my grades up and I did. And I just kind of continued on from there. And it, it's very different than where I'm at now and what I'm doing now. It's definitely a different mindset. It's a different reality. I feel like I know how to handle myself in my studies. And I know what I need to do to advocate for myself to learn. Whereas before, I just felt uh, incapable all the time because I didn't know what I didn't know. Mm. So that was, it was a, it's a very big difference. Yeah, yeah. We hear this a lot, that there's this, this feeling of just walking around in the dark, knowing there's something going on. But because it hasn't been spotted by a teacher or a parent, we automatically yes. go inwards and think, OK, it's us. We're the ones that are failing. We're the ones that there's something wrong with because our brains aren't conforming to the external systems that have been put in place. Yes. And, and I'm wondering, you know, um, maybe from your background, from your parents, your school, how was it missed from a younger age to, to 19 and has it been in your family at all like what kind of knowledge did or awareness did they have so definitely nobody suspected any of this um it was missed I think from a, a couple of different reasons which have been told to me by psychologists and just other people and I agree first of all as women like there are studies to show that ADHD does present itself slightly differently than it does in men. And, and so we might be used to seeing those stereotypical um, symptoms that people think of as ADHD, which do exist. It goes so much deeper than that. And I think it hit me in a not so stereotypical way where people didn't think that it was ADHD or think that way at all. And in terms of all the other stuff as well, I was always a very I always tried very hard in school. So to people like even now, like people from like who went to school with me, like when they find out they're like, 
wait, you were a failing student? No, you weren't. Like, they don't remember it as that because I think people have this idea of what a failing student is, what they look like. They're not trying. They're doing this, this, and this. But I was always extremely, you know, focused and tried my best and studied a lot and presented myself in a way which kind of suggested that I, like, I'm all for, like, school and school means a lot to me, but it did. But so I think that's why, like, people didn't really catch on that I was struggling so much because they were like, no, no, it's fine. Like, I kind of had to teach myself how to get by and mask a lot of things. And so that's why nobody really was like, oh, maybe this is going on. Because, yes, I struggled a lot, but I also had to do a lot of work as a child to make up for the fact that I was struggling, but there was nothing that anybody was seeing. So I just had to mask a lot and just kind of teach myself what I could to get by or to look like I knew what I was doing when I didn't. Yeah. And it's so tiring and exhausting, isn't it? That's why we hear, you know, so much about anxiety and Mm -hmm. sleeplessness and all these things because we're internalizing so much and the and the sad thing is is that you were obviously so desperate to be a good student Mm -hmm. and there was this block there that no one was quite noticing and um and you know I still see it now with with teachers you know teachers that I've spoken to who are like well this she's definitely hasn't got ADHD like she's not doing this and she's not doing that yeah and I get so frustrated because it's just like look beneath the surface it's all you Mm -hmm. have to do is look and start noticing these patterns and and I hope that as new teachers are being trained and you know even old teachers are starting to open their mind to go actually I need to go back and I need to understand how this is specifically showing up in in women and girls and females because this is where so many people like yourself have got similar stories um Mm -hmm. what how did it feel being a student who obviously was desperate to do well and succeed and felt like you were intelligent because there's no way that you're not how did it feel to not have that understanding and I guess how did that present for you it was very tough mentally um because I would spend hours and hours studying for something or working on something and the outcome would still be failure. And then I'd have my peers who would be able to put in, um, and this isn't to say that they didn't work hard. Of course they did, but I, I had to obviously spend more extra time on things. So it was tough seeing that I had to put in like double or triple the amount of hours or work to do something that may have taken them like a fraction of that time. That was always frustrating just because I was like, okay, fine. Like, you know, I I have to, for whatever reason, put in all this extra time to understand this. I'm not going to complain, but then at least the outcome should not be failure then, but it always was. So that was definitely tough mentally. And I think right before my diagnosis, like a, a month or two before I started kind of advocating for my diagnosis, I was at an all-time low. I, I definitely was struggling to just get off the couch and do any more schoolwork. I remember I'd studied really hard for this exam and it was worth a lot and I f- completely bombed it, like just failed. And after that, I was just like, I don't know, like, I don't know what's going on. Like, I can't keep doing this. I you know, prepared for so long. Why can't I like, what is going on? So it definitely almost broke me at one point mentally, just because it's very exhausting to deal with those emotions of being in university and having a goal and 
you know, learning academics at that level and putting in like hours and hours and hours a day and still not doing well. So that was definitely a little bit of a crazy time. Yeah. So obviously you went from that, the diagnosis, how did you then turn things around? Like what tools did you implement? Mm -hmm. Was there medication? Was there coaching? Like what helped you move from what you perceived as being a failing student to mm-hmm. then succeeding and getting into Harvard to do a master's. If anyone's listening to this right now and they either have children who are doing exams or them themselves, they, they're <coughs> studying, how, um, how pivotal was that diagnosis and what came from that? For me, it was life-changing. It was almost like an immediate uh, difference. I went from like, like actually failing to A's and B's within months. And I know people are like, well, how is that possible? Like, that's crazy. But it was possible for me because, first of all, the diagnosis gave me mentally so much. I felt like I could look back into moments into my childhood and just heal from a lot of uh, things that I blamed myself for. And I that was a very healing experience. And It also allowed me to not feel bad or guilty about what was going on because it wasn't my fault. And then it also allowed me to be like, okay, well, I have a right to accommodations and to learn in in the way that I need. So now I need to kind of figure out how I learn. What do I need to do that? Because clearly it's just that my brain is a little different. Like I just have to figure it out. So mentally, I think the mental change and empowerment I felt just flipped a switch in me where I was able to completely do things differently. And it was an immediate difference in my school. I'd never seen A's and B's in my life. And, And so I got out of academic probation And then I was like on such a high from like being feeling so empowered because I was like, I knew it, like I knew something was up (laughs) my whole life. And it's like, finally, like I have the answer that summer after the diagnosis, I took five summer school classes just because I was like so excited to like learn and not have it be such a daunting task. And I did again, like A's and B's and those. So it was such a day and night difference and it was immediate for me. So it's like um, that diagnosis just unlocked a different mindset. You were able to almost like free your brain to to operate the way it wanted to operate and not see yourself as this failure, you know, this representation of your, of your failure in a mark that you were able to be like, okay, this is the way my brain wants to work. Let's, let's invite it to do its best. best Exactly. I mean, what, do you mind me asking how your parents were with regards to your diagnosis? Yeah. Were they supportive? And I guess how have they or did they help you, you know, from diagnosis to getting these A's and B's? And did they change their mindset at all? Yes, my parents are very supportive. When I told them that I want to get tested, like they were immediately like, yeah, they didn't think that I like it never crossed their mind initially that. I could have this because again, like, I feel like people don't know what they don't know. And there is just not a lot of awareness around what it means to have ADHD or a learning disability. So I understand why people may not have been like, oh, well, you might have that just because what people know of 
what it may look like is not deep enough. And so they never suspected that. But when I told them that I did, they were like, well, we don't think you have it anything or a learning disability, you know, but sure. Like, yeah, if, if it makes you feel better to get tested, let's get you tested. And they've been just absolutely amazing. They're very proud of me and they don't think of, you know, cause in certain cultures, it can be a little taboo to be like, Oh, you have a learning disability. Like that's a mental like disorder. Like people take it very to the extreme of negativity, which is not valid. And my parents never did that. Like they don't hide that fact from anybody and they openly talk about it. And they, they've just been like, just so supportive. Like when I graduated from uh, my undergrad last summer, they literally helped me glue on. I wanted to, on my graduation cap, glue on the words neurodiverse and decorate it. And they literally brought the glue and they sat down with me and they glued it on and they took a lot of pictures. And um, they're like my biggest advocates ever. And they always kind of ask me what I need from them or they provide me with that support even if I don't ask but it's in a way where they kind of give me wisdom and guidance or resources or like offer like hey do you want me to do this for you are you struggling with this this week or you know so and so but then they'll let me take the lead and kind of show them what I need because I'm kind of a my lifestyle is very organized my brain is very chaotic that's why it needs my life needs to be organized to the T. So there are very specific things that I do. Like I sleep uh, every night with the TV on because I need a Netflix show and it only has, and it has to be a Netflix show, like out of the couple of ones that I've seen a million times um, to sleep. If I don't have that, I can't sleep. Um, and, And so that's just like one of the like things that I would say that is part of like my routine. And so I have very poor sleep hygiene in general. Like I don't get much sleep. Um, And so that's something that my mom is constantly supporting me with, whether it be like she is like finding things online, like maybe some natural like remedies or things that can be calming to sleep. Or she'll start reading like ADHD articles that might talk about sleep. And then she'll send them to me and be like, okay, read this. Like I found this, like maybe this will help you sleep. She's always making sure that she's checking in on my health and things like this, just because it sleep and, and all that is part of my daily routine. It's part of everyone's daily routine. And because my sleep is so bad, it can definitely affect um, the rest of my day and, and everything else I do. So there's definitely constant supports in place from everyone in my life and my parents and everyone, because everyone's always like, you never sleep. Like I'm up till like 5am most nights and then it gets tough. So So definitely I appreciate all of their support, especially in terms of like my health, because they're always on top of it, always checking in on me and stuff. Yeah, I can fully relate as a parent to to all of that. Do Do you have difficulty sleeping because of the medication or not? Or is just in general, that's just a part of your ADHD? So I'm not on medication. Um, I've never been on medication. It's something that I've considered, but ultimately as of right now, I'm just, just kind of seeing if I can continue on with my structured kind of routine and, and things that I've put into place. Um, 
but I have considered it. And it, my bad sleep is because of the ADHD. I can't shut my brain off at all. Um, and I could be exhausted. Like it's, it's difficult because I could be completely exhausted, but that doesn't mean I can fall asleep. That definitely is one of the biggest challenges from my ADHD personally is the sleep because it's been happening for years, like years and years. I don't remember the last time when I was like, oh yeah, I sleep at a normal time. Like I'm always up. Um, but there's also, I guess if I spin it in a positive way, I, I do get a lot of work done in the middle of the night. Cause it's just, my brain is just awake. So there's that. <laughs> but, yeah. Yeah. I yeah. mean, I, I hear this so much. I mean, one thing I'd maybe, um, is worth considering is that there's certain medications that, um, actually help with this. So specifically, yeah. so it's, it's not taking the medication for concentration or focus. It's helping mm-hmm. you get your, your sleep hygiene back on track. Um, yeah. so, there are ways to do that where people take this medication and then they feel so much more balanced and Mm -hmm. ready to sleep at the right time. But then on the flip side, like you say, like so many of us have different ways of sleep. Like some people are larks where they wake up like super early. And my husband, you know, five in the morning, that's it. He's ready to start his day. But at 9.30 a.m., he's like finished. He just, that's it. Um, But from 5 a.m., he's ready to go. And... Whereas I definitely am more of a night owl, um, mm-hmm. but I have lots of sleep things as well. And I have like a whole routine of sprays, tab supplements, earplugs. Um, if my pillow's not quite right and I'm in, I've got the wrong bedding and if I'm on the wrong mattress, like so many different things. Yes. Mm-hmm. And I sleep the best when I'm at home in my own bed, mm-hmm. which is a bit of a pain when you go on holiday and you just want to go and have a gorgeous <laughs> holiday. And then you complaining yeah. about the pillow or the bedding or this. It yeah. makes me sound like a precious princess when actually it's just, I like all my sensory things all, yes. all nice. And, I and totally everything. get that. Yeah. It's so, yeah. And, and I wondered like, from a lifestyle perspective I know you you're still young and you're navigating this I remember being your age and lifestyle and self-care just was not my agenda Mm -hmm. but I wondered you get um, a lot of outdoor light do you spend time outside you do is there a lot of movement in your day Um, how do you I guess hopefully I guess prepare yourself for sleep during the day because often people think oh it's the hour before bed but actually it's from the, the minute we wake up how, how do you prepare yourself for, for sleep? So for me, I think self-care has definitely been something that I started doing recently after I moved to Boston, just being alone and having a big lifestyle change of just moving kind of triggered me to be like, okay, well, I think I should start taking care of myself more in general now, like, you know, even just going to grad school. So I definitely, so I've tried doing a sleep routine and setting alarms and just going to bed and like forcing myself to do that and like doing all the relaxation stuff before like no screens and all the like the lavender mist and the baths for me it didn't work I would get anxiety because even though I would get in the bed at the time that my alarm would go off to go to bed I would stay up for hours like hours and hours in the bed and it just felt like very uh claustrophobic in my brain I was like oh my god this is terrible so I was like no I then I just get up turn the lights on turn the tv sit down get an apple like just eat it so I think I learned from that to not force myself to 
do that again as of right now, just because it never worked for me and I need to kind of survive in grad school. And I'm doing my best to improve my sleep routine, but I'm also trying to work in its favor so that even if it sucks, I can get the best out of my day and still get what I need. So I always take a look at my calendar the night before and then I look at my to-do list and then I gauge my my energy level because sometimes I just have nothing and then sometimes I'm like oh yeah I can feel that like in an hour or two I'm gonna be extremely productive like I just have a gut feeling so I schedule my sleep routine and set myself up according to the work I have to do in the day and there's nights where I would rather stay up and use the fact that I can't sleep all night to get the work done, stay up till five, six, seven a.m. if I have nothing the next day early and literally sleep to the afternoon. Or I'm like, no, I'm actually tired. I'm not feeling an energy burst. I'm going to head to bed earlier and then set an alarm at a moderate time that I know I'll get up at. And that sort of loose looseness of a routine of sleep has been what I've been surviving off for the past year I'd say and I hope one day it would get to the point where I can just go to sleep and wake up at a a good time but as of right now it's sort of working so that's just where I'm at yeah and you know what like we are very resourceful people and we're resilient people Mm -hmm. and I always believe that we find tools and techniques and strategies that intuitively work for us they may not look they may not conform to what everyone else is doing but if it's working for you I always say to my clients it's like why is it wrong like why are you telling yourself it's wrong like we see emergency shift workers night workers you know there's Mm -hmm. so many people holding up society by working in the evening and doing night work you know people that work in restaurants and nightlife and hospitals and all of that like we need people who have got different internal clots to us like it's pivotal but we have this story that it's wrong we're wrong and it's unhealthy and and I do think that you should trust yourself and trust that if that is your way of working you know maybe as you get older and maybe you know maybe if you want a family or you don't like Mm-hmm. things will shift and change and, and you will find new coping strategies so exactly. I would maybe don't put too much pressure on yourself if it's working and obviously look after yourself like look after your your, your mental health and your physical mm-hmm. health that's really important no that's so true I feel like you know I love that perspective because for me yes there are times where it, it, it does negatively impact my health so for that it's like change is warranted but then there's times where I'm like no like actually I'm doing some of my best work in the middle of the night. And if I don't have any engagements in the afternoon, I know it's like, oh, you're sleeping till the afternoon. Like Mm. you're getting up, but it's like, okay. But my daytime is just in the middle. I'm just doing what people do at 1 PM at four in the morning. It's just, that's how it is for me. Mm. So I definitely agree with that. Yeah. Yeah. Just interrupting today's podcast to let you know the ADHD hormone series has been live now for a month and I am so excited to see how many of you have downloaded it. I'm delighted because this was all about helping you empower and advocate for yourselves to support yourself to learn and to create more awareness around your different cycles why different things have been showing up as a pattern through your life whether that's migraines, PMDD, low mood, lower energy, endometriosis, 
really anything to do with hormonal fluctuations and why they've been so exacerbated by probably your undiagnosed ADHD. So I've interviewed so many different experts and specialists who not only understand women's health, gut issues, sleep, energy, breath work, lifestyle, nutrition, all these different things, hormones, but also understand all of this through the lens of neurodivergence. Now, as we speak, I am recording new interviews with different specialists. I've got an ADHD midwife. I've got another GP who specializes in self-compassion. I've got a nutritionist who's written a book specifically about brain health and ADHD. So this is the most up-to-date, most specialized knowledge that I can find to help you make those connections between hormones and ADHD. So if you haven't downloaded it yet, even if it's not for you and it's for a loved one, it's for a daughter, granddaughter, niece, friend, I want you to be able to get all this information. Now, the launch price is what it is right now, but as I update the series and put in new content and resources, the price is going to go up. But if you buy right now at the launch price, you'll be able to lock in and every time it's updated, the price won't change and this is what you'll get, continually updates and new information coming through. So all the information is on my website, adhdwomenswellbeing.co.uk. It's also in the show notes of today's episode. And if you are desperate for answers, you've been dismissed, you've been invalidated, you've been passed from pillar to post, I promise you in this hormone series, you will start getting those answers and you'll be able to start advocating yourself and asking for what you need. Now back to today's episode. You know, before we finish off this conversation, I really want to hone in on, I guess, what your plans are working in this space in education and the masters that you're doing now and I, what you're already doing on the ground. I know that you're already advocating and you're working in making change. What What is your plan? And I guess, why did you want to come on the podcast and, and what do you want to see change moving forwards for your generation and the generation beneath you? For me, my plan in terms of what I want to do from my education as well as tying that into neurodiversity, I would love to see two things. I want to have impact directly on the education system and education reform, and I want to have direct impact on people, on young people, um, for self-empowerment for them. And I'm hoping that my degree will give me not only the knowledge, but the connections and the, the mindset, the empowerment, like all of that to know how to take that action. And, I, and I've been doing this work for a couple of years, but I really want to make a very big impactful change, you know, maybe even at a systemic level in the education system one day. And I would love to see education reform happening in, in schools that consists of adapting and allowing, and, and this wouldn't just benefit neurodiverse kids. This would benefit all learners um, because once we start to realize that there's not just one way to be smart or intelligent, therefore there's not one way to just learn. And when people start to understand the depth of the fact that all we need to do is provide access and accessible learning to all kids, there would be higher graduation rates, higher rates of neurodiverse students going to grad school or even undergrad and being successful. It's not them. 
the issue is a barrier to the type of learning and teaching styles that they need. Um, right now, and I'm talking generally, of course, because there's many people making great efforts in the education system as we speak, but right now it's sort of like, oh, you have a diagnosis. Okay, you have an IEP. Okay, cool. You know, you're kind of going to get do this separate work or, you know, we'll, we'll monitor you and you might have like some support, but it's not an inclusive teaching method in terms of how things are actually being taught. And that simple change could change so many lives. And even I think of physical things with ADHD, if we allowed our classrooms to be more ADHD friendly in terms of having sensory things, fidgets, uh, time to move around. I don't think that school, and, and a lot of people don't agree with me, but I, I understand there has to be structure and a certain amount of obedience in school, of course. And we need to teach, because in life, you're going to have to sit at a desk sometimes and not be able to get up metaphorically and literally. That is should be a part of school. It shouldn't be you know chaotic, but I don't think that it makes any sense to have kids completely change change to their desk and only allowed to get up to go to the bathroom and blah 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 because why do we go from when children are younger such free classroom spaces and more time on you know in different areas sitting on the ground maybe standing up going for walks blah 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 and it just all becomes so restrictive over time but why you know because I think it's just this well you're growing up but that doesn't mean your bodily you know like needs are necessarily extremely different. I feel like we should allow a more relaxed environment where if a child needs to get up and just kind of walk around a bit or maybe go sit on a different type of chair or whatever it may be, that's really not a difficult change. It's a change of culture within schools. I feel like that would do a lot of good. I had a university professor who was so kind to me here. And she just said to me, and she was like, if you need to get up and leave class, you can do that. Or if you need, if you can't like sit anymore, there's room in the back of the classroom. If you want to go stand there during the lecture or walk around. And I was like, Oh my gosh, like, thank you so much. Because a lot of professors or teachers just wouldn't want you to do that because it's considered disruptive. But I think there's a respectful, non-disruptive way to do these sorts of things. So overall, I just feel like there's a lot of different things that I'm working on learning more about so that one day maybe I can bring upon some sort of change because it's very difficult. I think I've learned in the education, I think making change in the education system may be one of the most difficult places to make a change just because we have to consider that it's not that you could just go in, talk to somebody and be like, well, I think, you know, this is the way things should be taught to uh, be inclusive of all learners. It's a systemic issue. It, it can be a direct issue where some teachers are not willing, but there's so many teachers who are, but that doesn't mean that they're able to fully do what they need to, or they have the training or the resources at a systemic level, the education system is built on this traditional notion of you learn something, you learn it the way it's being taught, that is it. You get an, a 
a good grade. If you don't, you don't understand. You're not good. You're a failure. If you can't, too late, you can't catch up. And it's, it's very stuck in its old ways. And I think the way we can break that down starts from awareness first and educating people on just at its base, like even people who maybe don't care because some people don't care if it doesn't affect them, if their kids don't have it or if they don't Mm -hmm. have it. If we can start to show them like the actual research that's been done on teaching and learning methods and universal design methods of the, the connection between what happens when somebody uses a certain method to teach to the point where it reaches the kid's brain Mm -hmm. and all the different relationships within a child's brain with learning. I think that can open a lot of doors because I think people will start to see that changing the way that traditional education currently is running is not a bad thing. And it doesn't mean that it's this like chaotic farmland of like a change that's going to make these kids not prepared for university because the real life, you know, the argument I hear the most is, well, real life isn't like that. But real life isn't like traditional education. We're not stuck, you know, at somebody else's mercy at a desk where we can't get up and we can't, you know, do anything else. And if we fail this one thing, like it's over, like you fail this, that like, there's always ways to get reroute yourself in life or advocate and there's more freedom. So I think that argument is just not valid. So I would hope that by, like you mentioned, like, why do I want to come on this podcast? I think I just want to keep talking about these things so that it reaches more people. And maybe one thing I've said this entire time, hopefully at least one would reach somebody and make them think or provoke a thought. It just takes Mm -hmm. one thought for somebody to be like, oh, okay. Like you never know what you could say to somebody to make them change their mind about something. So I feel like just talking about it is always the first step because we need to educate people first of all. And also it's very empowering to be in in this community where everyone is super supportive and just trying to learn how to survive in a world that wasn't made for our brains. Mm. So I think that's my goal. And hopefully with proper education and a voice, I can combine those things in the future to make a change that people will actually support in the education system. Yeah. Oh my goodness. I mean, this is music to my ears. This is what I would love. Listen, you know, I'm, I'm way past the change in, in education um, for me and potentially for my kids, even though I, I try so hard to advocate for them and I try and speak to the special education needs department mm-hmm. here in the UK in, in their schools. And I try so hard to explain to them that them getting up and moving or then going out and getting a drink of water or having some fresh air or sitting by the window is really those little tiny touches are just going to be so important and so helpful in regrouping their focus and it shouldn't have to come to relying on medication for them to have to sit there and and absorb the information in the traditional sense because actually you know from from medical and scientific research we know that there's a part of our brain called the cerebellum and actually Mm -hmm. that being stimulated um 
helps us retain information but by doing that it's moving our body like we move we actually retain and learn better by moving our body and so why should we be sat there getting more and more tired and bored when if we were able to stand up be outside like you say it's perfectly acceptable for kids in nursery school and you know in the early in the early years to learn outside to have forest schools and do all of that but when it's you're a teenager when you've got to retain and learn the Mm -hmm. most amount of information and memorize it I mean don't even talk to me about memorizing information that drives me insane (laughs) because you could literally be the best student in the world but if your short-term memory is is impacted then that's it you fail and Mm -hmm. I that has got nothing I mean unless you are a doctor and you have to remember certain Mm -hmm. information for you to remember historical facts and statistics personally yeah. is no reflection on someone's intellect um, yeah and and I just think that this reform is beyond needed this way of of learning and ed- this education system is stuck in like 100 years ago yeah and so I celebrate you and I hope that you make huge change and I believe that you probably will because from you. you know your young age the wisdom and the insights that you have are really powerful and, and I, if there's anything we can do, um, you know, the podcast or anything like that to help, um, please do let us know because we need people like you on the ground doing this big work. And I, I do believe that people are ready to change. I believe that the systems are in place now to, I think they, I think people are recognizing how outdated they are and they are ready yeah. to change. So I hope that you are, you're in for, <laughs> you're in this for the long haul <laughs> because it's not an easy yes. fight. Definitely. I really appreciate that. Yeah, I, I think it's, it's very empowering because even though it's, it's very difficult and it's a long task, I think when, like I've had people reach out to me just based on other podcasts I've done, I didn't, you know, the first time someone sent me an email and they were just saying like, Oh, thanks for speaking out. I really related to that. It made me feel this and this. I was like, wow. I just felt so like great. Cause I was like, well, all I did was talk about it and somebody expressed to me that they felt finally understood and all these things. And I was like, that's just me talking about my own life. So if I can use my education to try and navigate change directly, I feel like that's something I need to do for my community. Cause I don't think I don't want to be somebody that got lucky. I got, you know, I was able to gain a certain amount of success in school and now in my career and get to a place like Harvard and be like, okay, well, bye. I'm just going to ignore everything I went through because there's still, there's so many people just living the life I was living a few years ago and everyone's life is different. I'm very lucky that I am living this life right now here at this school, but I want to bridge that gap so that there's more people who can see themselves in a place where I'm at now, because I couldn't see myself here two years ago, but I'm here now. So, you know, I really appreciate you letting me have a voice on your podcast. And it's been really great to kind of share my story and talk about it. Cause I think talking about this kind of stuff within our community is very empowering. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm just thinking on the top of my head that there must be a way of creating some form of manifesto or like a, a top line one pager that schools can adopt as like, these are the just key changes that you can make from today that 
we can start seeing in everyday classrooms, like you say, getting up, um, having time, having space, um, moving around, like those little things that even if deep structural um, educational changes take a while, but yes, a manifesto where a, a school can sign it and say, we are adhering to these new ways of learning. Is that something you've considered? I have. Um, I, I juggle because of my ADHD is sometimes I can't pick one. I'm always juggling a, a couple of different like neurodiversity projects. And so sometimes I have to put some on pause and things like that, that doing that work where I potentially create some sort of, I was thinking of um, it in terms of like a, tr a training uh, either seminar or like a booklet for teachers to reference for them to know the important things. I was considering that back a year or two ago and still I'm considering it. It's on my like uh, Google Doc list of projects that I want to do. I haven't worked on it yet, but it's definitely, I think, a great idea just because there are so many educators that they do want to do the work. They do understand that these type of learners exist and they don't, they refute traditional education. And so they just may not have the knowledge or resources or support to know where to start. And so for those wonderful educators, I think this could be a great option for them to, to have and, and they could start personalizing the way they teach in their classroom for all of their students. Yeah, absolutely. I think just sometimes we need to just make it as tangible and as easy as possible. And yes. just like a one-page PDF of if you have no money and you have like you know, limited resources in this special education department. These are the top line ideas that you could do starting from tomorrow. Like my daughter who was diagnosed when she was nine, it was during the pandemic. Mm -hmm. And she went back to school after COVID and her amazing teacher was incredibly well um, educated in this field. It was kind of like her, her passion. Mm -hmm. And she used to give her these jobs. Can you go and pick up the water? Can you go and take the post? Can you throw the garbage away? And give her little jobs, which meant she could break up her day by going for a little walk, walking from the classroom to the staff room, to the reception area. And no one else knew why, but that was her little job that she oh, could wow. just get up, stretch her legs, get some fresh air and come back five minutes later. And that was one of the most incredible, but most innovative ways of yeah. doing this. So the kid didn't feel, you know, my, well, it's my daughter at the time, but she didn't feel like she was getting any special treatment. She was just yes. the helper, which yes. involved her stretching her legs, getting some fresh air and um, having some time out from the classroom. And I'm forever grateful for her giving her that because um, it was a gift. It was a gift. Yeah. And so if anyone is listening, that is just one little tiny way to, to begin. And also, I want to mention um, someone called Sarah Templeton, who's been on the podcast, who I work with. And she's written an amazing book all about um, harnessing and getting the best out of your kids, your, your pupils, if you're a teacher. And I'll reference it on the show notes, mm -hmm. because if you just Google Sarah Templeton and the book, an ADHD teacher's book, I can't quite remember the, the name of it. It's yeah. on Amazon. And I know that loads of educators are reading that and absolutely loving it and saying it's just bang on the money. So if you are listening right now and you want to implement change, Sarah Templeton's book is fantastic. That sounds amazing. I what your what that teacher did for your daughter, that that is the type of, I think, 
care that we need. I feel like, especially like referencing what I was saying earlier, I think the key is inclusion. So like your daughter didn't feel like she was being singled out because Mm -hmm. the teacher made the task just like kind of like a a disguise for what she needed. Mm -hmm. If we start to implement these inclusive education strategies for all the kids and just having accessibility to those accommodations, whether it be sensory toys or needing to get up and walk around, I think it would just be so amazing because the mental health aspect of like being different in school and having special treatment, we all know how kids can be mean and talk, especially in an elementary school age, that sort of thing would be so amazing to have just for any kid, because then not only it's beneficial for everybody, but the children who really, really need it, they're not going to feel bad for needing it. It's just a Mm -hmm. part of school. School is for everybody. That's just how it is. Like, I remember when I was an undergrad, um, before I got my accommodations, it would be really hard for me to sit in like a lecture that went over an hour, like somewhere like three hours. I, or even, even within an hour, I felt like I wanted to crawl out of my skin. Like I, mm-hmm. I physically, my breathing, I would have a hard time breathing. I was shake. I probably looked like I was going off the wall because I couldn't focus on anything. I, you know, the bright, the, I have light sensitivity too. So the lights were too bright. And I just like, it's almost like a panic attack. And that's how I constantly felt until my accommodation where I told the professors, well, you know, here's my accommodations from the school. I have the ability to like leave class as much as I want. And they obviously didn't say anything about it. Um, and so I would get up and go take breaks. But even then, like, I remember understandably my, my classmates would always like look at me and be like, why is this girl like leaving the class all the time? Which I understand. I would be curious if somebody kept leaving. So I feel like having things in place that are accessible for everybody. And it's just part of the culture of the environment that you're in. It's just point blank, just better than singling people out. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Simran, thank you so much. Honestly, it's been a pleasure to meet you and I can't wait to hear more about what you're doing. If someone wants to get in touch, have you got a website or you got an email address? Like how would people want to get in touch with you? Yes. So uh, a few different methods. I, so my LinkedIn, um, if you just search up my name, it should just like pop on there. Um, My LinkedIn is probably the best place to kind of find all the information because on my LinkedIn, I have my website, which I'll just say now is um, theabstractgenius.com. It's under works right now, but there is a, a bit of information on there. Um, in terms of that's my not-for-profit that I'm working on. But in terms of getting in touch with me, you can always email me, um, which my email is, and all my contact information is on my LinkedIn. So that would probably be the best way to find the best method of contact. Okay, I'll make sure it's all in the show notes, so don't worry Perfect. about that. Simran, Perfect. thank you so much, and I hope to speak to you very soon. Thank you so much, appreciate it. Thank you so much for joining me on today's episode. I hope you found what you were looking for in this conversation and it's helped guide you towards some further self-healing, self-exploration and most importantly, self-acceptance. And if you have enjoyed this conversation and would like to experience more of my work, such as access to exclusive live workshops and opportunities for group coaching sessions, connecting with other like-minded women, 
and a general feeling of belonging, please come and check out my monthly membership, the ADHD Women's Wellbeing Collective. I've made it as affordable as possible and I offer you lots of resources and opportunities for connection and support from other women all around the world being diagnosed with ADHD later on in life. I'd absolutely love to see you there. All the details are in this episode's show notes or on my website, adhdwomenswellbeing.co.uk. See you in the next episode.